Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But my story really starts with drug addiction. I uh, picked up my first beer at 12, and I was like, wow, I'm not socially awkward and weird anymore. What was it that you were angry about? I think I was angry from just years of being bullied, years of being poor and moving around from place to place. I, you know, I had a really rough childhood in that. So I had over two ounces and they automatically say that you're a drug dealer at that point, which I was. Uh, And then I also had a gun in the car. So they hit me with simultaneous possession of drugs and a firearm. 20 years, I'm done. I am never gonna see the light of day again. I was very depressed, very out of it. I was also told that I was pregnant. How do you go to prison pregnant? What does that look like? What's gonna happen to me? What's gonna happen to my baby? Welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast focuses on the theme of Second Chance, exploring who deserves it, who has the authority to grant it, and what it means. We speak with people from diverse backgrounds, including those who have been given second chances and those who some might argue don't deserve them. In this episode, we share Jessica Kent's incredible journey, giving birth in prison, overcoming addiction, and advocating for change. Her remarkable story of giving birth whilst chained to her bed in prison, battling alcoholism at a young age, to struggling with pill addiction and heroin. Jessica has faced many challenges throughout her life. Despite these obstacles, she's managed to turn her life around and become an influential figure with over 2 million social media followers. Jessica emphasises the importance of treating vulnerable individuals with respect and compassion. She uses her platform to raise awareness of issues within the prison system, including the neglect of inmates' medical needs and the denial of access to basic hygiene products. Jessica holds a bachelor's degree in correctional programs support services and is now a full-time YouTuber and mental health advocate. She is a shining example of what can be achieved through determination and hard work and she serves as an inspiration to women who have been through similar struggles. Jessica's story serves as a reminder of the changes that need to be made in prison systems. You can watch her full interview on Second Chance Podcast YouTube channel. The reason I wanted to to invite you onto my podcast is because you have a fascinating story. I mean, you are someone who was a, a, a drug addict, you committed crimes, you went to prison, you gave birth to a child, your first daughter in prison, you've come out of prison, you've come off the drugs, you become a public speaker, you have such a presence on social media, you're an inspiration to not just women, young women and guys, but you've done so much. So I don't know where to start. That's the tricky thing. So I want you to start this. Where do you want to start sharing your story? I mean, it's always good to go to the beginning, but you might want to tell me about what you're doing today. But 
you tell me where you want to start, Jessica, because I could start in any of those directions. Well, thank you for having me, first and foremost. Uh, it's always just such a pleasure to share my story across different platforms. But, but my story really starts with drug addiction. You know, I think that's always a good place to start. I struggled with addiction from a very young age. I uh, picked up my first beer at 12. And I was like, wow, I'm not socially awkward and weird anymore. You know, I'm more outgoing and comfortable. And at that time in my life, we were really, really poor. You know, I was bounced around from house to house, town to town, different school districts. I had no friends. I was really bullied. And uh, growing up, you know, in Section 8 housing and constantly getting evicted, that was a struggle as a, as a young kid. So when I drank beer for the first time with the first friend that I had in a long time, I felt so good. And I wanted to continue to feel good. Now, I'm 32. So 20 years ago, we weren't talking about alcohol in the same way that we're talking about it now. I always heard, like, say no to drugs. Stay away from drugs, you know. And that might sound really ignorant, but I didn't think it was a big deal to drink beer, <laughs> You know, I, I really didn't think much of it. And I was also a child. So from 12, 13, 14, I really started drinking a lot more, uh, just as often as I possibly could. I started skipping school and, you know, sneaking away from home to go party. And eventually the alcohol led to pill addiction because I got caught several times drinking alcohol and I was put on probation through the school. That was called PINS probation. And people could smell alcohol on my breath and they knew that I was drinking. So a friend of mine, after an altercation, after I was, I was jumped, a friend of mine told me that the pain medication that the hospital is giving me, if I just crush that up, I'm going to feel really good. So alcoholism led to pill addiction. Pill addiction led to heroin eventually when I was 17, 18, 19, 20. 21. Can, can, I, can, I, can I just jump in here? Because the sure. obvious question is, where were your parents at this point? Because most people would, either you're doing it behind your parents' back or they'd lost total control of you, or they themselves, you know, this is the often typical story, they themselves were on drugs and drinks or neglectful. I mean, where were your parents at this point, Jessica? I do want to answer that with saying that addiction is not a parenting fail. But my mom at that point was, she was really depressed, struggling with mental health herself, and I was just a very out-of-control teen. So at 13, my mom realized this is a serious problem. And my mom sent me to go live with my dad and my stepmom, who are incredible. They, you know, they're members of my community in my hometown. And my dad uh, runs a radio station and my stepmom is a teacher. And they had no concept for drug addiction. They didn't understand what I was going through. And they tried, you know, they really did. They tried everything that they possibly could, therapy and tough love and punishing me and whatever they could think of. Uh, and nothing worked because I just did not care. I was a very out of control, very angry kid with a chip on her shoulder. And I, um, you know, I, it's not their fault is essentially what I'm trying to say. They really did try. What, what was it that you were angry about then? What was it? I mean, all kids are angry about different things. What was it that, that, that had got into your head? You, you said earlier that you didn't have any friends or, or, or you, you know, you were awkward. I mean, what was it that you were angry about, Jessica, at that point in your life? I think I was angry from just years of being bullied, years of being poor and moving around from place to place. And I, you know, I had a really rough childhood in that. You know, I didn't have any stability. Uh, I was bullied and jumped a couple of different times, and it just made me really angry. Uh, in, in that situation, I decided to sell drugs because I just didn't want to be poor. I didn't want to be poor. I didn't want all the other kids to have fresh Nikes while I'm wearing crappy shoes. And it started with, like, really petty things that you wouldn't think would make someone want to be a drug dealer. Um, but I, I really idolized the hustle and the quick money. And I thought if I could sell this, then people will treat me differently. If I can dress differently, then I'm not going to be bullied anymore. And it, it started really small and then kind of speedballed out of control. 
You say that you, you went from drinking alcohol to crushing the pills that were actually medication to help you get off the, the, the alcohol, but you turned it into another source of drugs. And then you moved on to harder and heavier stuff and started selling the drugs and was selling the drugs not only to buy the, the sneakers, the nights, the trainers, the good clothes so that you fitted in. Was it also to supply or, 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 or you know support your habit, which was growing, I suspect? Absolutely. You know, it was kind of a, to me, in, in my mind at the time, the ends justified the means. Make as much money as you can, get free drugs because you're making the money with drug money and do whatever you want to do. I was very against the system and you couldn't get me to conform in any way, shape or form. So everyone else in my older teens, they're talking about college or maybe joining the military. And I was not going to do any of those things. Uh, I decided, why should I go to college and get a job? I have a job. I'm making more money than the teachers at this school. So why should I have to go to college? Girl, you should have just gone to college. <laughs> but in my head, I'm like, I, I found the easy way out. You know, I have outsmarted the system. I didn't. Well, that's, that's what you thought at the time. But it spiraled out of control, didn't it? Where there came a point where you obviously ended up in, in prison at some point. Tell me about that. How did that come about? Yeah. So I, at this point, I was struggling with addiction for a really long time at that point. And, um, and what drugs were you on? What drugs were you consuming? Alcohol led to heroin or alcohol led to pills. Pills led to heroin. Heroin led to meth, um, which is, you know, a piece of my story that you found on YouTube where I gave birth in prison. Um, so I was kind of all over the place and my story is super confusing. Just to condense it and make it a little bit easier, I went on the run from some felony charges out of New York and I found myself in Arkansas. And at that point I had been in addiction for 10 years and I started using meth and I went from about 120 pounds to like 90 pounds, maybe 85 pounds. I was so skinny and so sick. And I remember thinking that I just didn't wanna live like this anymore. Not that I can find recovery and be sober. I just can't live anymore. I mean, that's really the depths of addiction. That's really what it does to you. It makes you think that there is no way out and that you are completely hopeless and you're going to die from this disease. You know, that's really what I thought. And it was just, you know, a very hard battle for 10 years. I would try to quit and then I would relapse. And I would try again and maybe I'd make it a couple of weeks and then I'd go right back to it. You know, so I, I understood, you know, with heroin that I had a problem. I knew that this was this was something that was probably going to kill me if I didn't stop. But I had absolutely no control. So then when meth came in, it was a whole new low. I mean, I was rock bottom as rock bottom could get. Like it was the most horrific feeling in the world to think that I have lost my soul. I am going to die. I'm going to die in the South where I don't really know anybody and my family's not going to know what happened to me. Probably it was just a really terrifying feeling that I couldn't escape. So at that point I'm selling meth just like I had before with heroin to support my habit, which I genuinely didn't think I was addicted to meth for some reason because I was using every day. You know, I just thought like, Ooh, this is, it makes me feel good. And I'm not detoxing like I was on heroin and I'm kind of in control, but I'm kind of not. You know, I, I did try to lie to myself throughout my addiction many times. Um, finally, I was arrested uh, in October of 2011. And at that moment, you know, I'd been, I'd been through that many times before. And I just thought, good, just take me to jail. Like, I don't even care. You know, I had nothing left in me. I had no fight left in me. I didn't care that I was getting put back in jail. It was just like, whatever. <laughs> Great. I guess we're going to jail today. And I was so numb to that experience, so numb to anything that could ever happen. How old were you at this point, Jessica? 23. So very young. You know, I, I was very young. And um, I was very emotionless in that. But my charges there were possession with intent. So I had over two ounces. And they automatically say that you're a drug dealer at that point, which I was. Uh, and then I also had a gun in the car. So they hit me with simultaneous possession of drugs and a firearm. And when I wouldn't cooperate with them, and I was very aggressive with them, when they tried to interview me, they also went back in their investigation and found a delivery charge. So selling the meth, they caught me on camera. 
And it had been an open investigation for quite some time because of the other people in my circle in that area. And uh, they told me I was facing 20 years. And I didn't know what that meant in Arkansas. In New York, you don't get 20 years unless you kill somebody. <laughs> so I'm just like, they're being dramatic. There's no way there is. But I didn't understand the law. And Arkansas is very different world. Uh, they didn't provide me with legal material or law books whatsoever. My public defender was very arrogant and crappy. He wasn't explaining to me what 20 years meant in Arkansas. Now I know that it means that you will either serve a half of your time or a third of your time, which we don't even have enough time to explain why. Arkansas is very strange, but I didn't know. So for months, I thought 20 years, I'm done. I am never going to see the light of day again. I was very depressed, very out of it. And shortly after I get arrested and I'm hearing this 20-year plea get thrown around, I was also told that I was pregnant by a nurse on the, on the facility or in the facility. And I thought she was crazy. I'm like, I'm not pregnant. You must have confused me with somebody else. I was in complete denial. You know, I know, I know that I'm going to go to prison, but how do you go to prison pregnant? What does that look like? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my baby? Is my baby healthy? And are we going to be okay? I had no idea. So I'm coming off of drugs. I am being told I'm facing 20 years. I am now told that I'm pregnant. And it was so heavy and it was so much for me to digest that I just had to be in complete denial for a little bit because my brain just couldn't comprehend the severity of what I was being told. It was just so much. It was so heavy. Did you get any support from the prison authorities? I mean, you're in custody now. Did they give you any support? Because you're a young woman, not only, as you say, you were coming off of drugs, but this revelation that you were now carrying around this little being that was going to become your child, um, but not just your child. I mean, your whole physical appearance was going to change. You're going to start to grow as the baby grows um, and the challenges that that would pose to you in prison. And then I suppose sharing this information with those that, that love and care about you, your parents and, and friends and other relatives, I suppose. There's, there's a lot going on apart from your psychological, physical challenges. How did that manifest itself, Jessica? That is such an incredible question because it, it's very complicated. Uh, the jail did not give me prenatal vitamins for three months. And that made me violent almost. I, I was fighting and begging them to give them to me and they just didn't have them. Uh, the only support that I got was an extra sandwich and an orange and a little carton of milk at the end of the day. And after a while, oranges started to make me nauseous, so I couldn't even eat that. I didn't have any psychological help, no mental health treatment whatsoever, no medical treatment for coming off of drugs, absolutely nothing. At one point, we didn't even have clean water in the jail. The only thing that was kind of in my favor at this point was that I was very early in my pregnancy when I was arrested. I, we estimate that I wasn't even a month along when I got arrested. So that means that I came off of drugs so early in my pregnancy that it didn't affect my child whatsoever. So that's good. I'm so grateful for that. But everything else was very, very hard. So I got arrested in October. Uh, probably about a month later, I was able to call my mom. Now the calls are very expensive. So I saw this girl, everything's a hustle in jail, by the way, but I saw this girl come through, a very young girl. She immediately bought phone cards from commissary. And then a couple of days later, she was bonded out. Now, I know that she still had the phone cards because inmates watch everything. And I watched her come through and do all these things. So she was walking out to get bonded out. And I saw the phone cards and her stuff. And I ran up to her and I said, hey, you're leaving, right? She goes, yeah, I got bonded out. And I'm like, can I please have those phone cards? And she gave them to me. And I almost cried when she handed them to me because now I get to make a phone call. So I called my mom and on a very short uh, jail phone call, I had to tell my mom, I'm not coming home anytime soon. And I'm also pregnant. And I remember, you know, this pause on the phone and she goes, are you sure? Like, we are very sure, actually. <laughs> um, and she started to cry. And my, I remember my brother being there and he's like, wait, what's going on? What's going on with her? She's pregnant. And it was just a very emotional call. I got, I hung up the call and I just started crying and I didn't know, you know, how my mom was handling that because I barely know how I'm handling it. So it, it was very hard telling them that I'm not coming home for a while. I'm going to write. 
you know, I can write on postcards. This jail won't even let me write full letters, but I'm going to write and I'm going to keep you updated. I'm okay. Everything's going to be okay. Now I had no idea if everything was going to be okay, but I don't want her to worry. You know, so I, I think I even told her that they're taking good care of me, which they weren't, but I, I didn't want her to stay up at night worrying about me and her first ever grandchild. So I listen to you. I can't help but think, you know, you're having this really difficult conversation with your mum. You're having a very difficult conversation with yourself about how you're going to get through the coming weeks and months as your baby grows. And, and no doubt there were big decisions that you had to make about whether you were going to keep it, not keep it, um, whether you could get out of prison. But the, the, the other thing that's pricking my mind is the father of the child. I mean, obviously, there's this guy out there who doesn't know anything. What what decision did you make in that regard? Just to back up here a little bit, most facilities in America will not give you a choice. I had no choice whether to keep the baby or not keep the baby. I was going to carry this pregnancy to term, and that was forced on me. Now, thinking back, if I had the option um, to not go through with the pregnancy, I still think I would have. But I just wanted to make that clear because a lot of facilities here, they force you to carry your baby to term. And I think that's a little barbaric. Uh, no one should force that on anyone. And I'll explain why when we, we get to delivery. But the biological father of my daughter was also in this facility with me. And I told him in the hallway of this jail, and I kind of said it as quickly as I could because we weren't supposed to be in the hallway at the same time. We were just all coming back from court and the women were supposed to face the wall and the men were supposed to face the wall so that we couldn't communicate with each other. Well, I'm not going to follow the rules. <laughs> you know, I was, I was very against the system. You've had nothing to that point. <laughs> I know. So that rule in the jail, like the most they're going to do is yell at me. So I said, you know, I'm pregnant and he goes, is it mine? And I knew right then and there in that moment, I am completely alone. This is all me, this is on me, this baby is mine, and I will be able to do this on my own. But I gave that person my word that months later, once I calmed down from my anger, I said, I'll keep you updated the best that I can from the position that I'm in. And I did, I did just that. I sales talked a corrections officer and a nurse even, to bring us out into the hallway at the same time at 10 o'clock at night so that he could hear her heartbeat because I wanted him to be involved and I didn't want to, you know, um, just because I didn't like this person and <laughs> I broke up with this person doesn't mean that he shouldn't have as much information as I had. And I wanted to be decent in that. So I, I did my absolute best to let him know that, you know, you're involved too, despite being aggressive and angry at first. But um, my plea agreement eventually got turned from 20 years to 10. And when they said 10 to me, I said, we're negotiating. You dropped it in half. I'm not signing that piece of paper ever, but that's amazing that we're negotiating. Um, so it took probably four months to have them come back to me and say 10 years is now on the table. And it was like a weight was lifted off of my shoulders, but I still kind of thought that we were going to go to trial. Now, again, in America, people are pushed into and forced into plea agreements, despite being innocent or not. Now, I'm very guilty. I am very, very guilty. <laughs> but um, it's estimated that about 10,000 people per year are wrongfully convicted because of the system that we have in place. You know, they're very aggressive. And they say, if you don't sign this plea for maybe one year, or, or even probation, then you're going to go to prison for 20. You know, so they're very aggressive with that. And despite being very guilty, I still had to fight because I'm going to have a baby and I want to get to know this child if I can. So uh, the state of Arkansas does not have a nursery program and she was going to be taken away from me and put in foster care. And I knew that from day one. So that's difficult. Now I have to work through that in my head. What does that look like? Well, it's difficult to, at let's say six months pregnant, to say what my delivery is going to look like. So I just tried to just live day by day by day. You know, my plea agreement is, you know, now drop down. We're now we're talking about 10. I let the biological father know what's going on. My parents know what's going on. I'm going to try to eat as much food from commissary as I can because I don't trust the jail food. And I was very nervous about that. But I, I genuinely did the best that I could to eat 
you know, as much as I could and the best that I could for, for both of us. Finally, uh, it was around six months when they said that my new plea and my final plea would be five years, 15 suspended. And I just thought like, please give me that paper. <laughs> please let me sign that paper. And I signed it so fast. I mean, I was so grateful for that. And you wouldn't think in a million years that anyone would be grateful for a five years in prison sentence, but I was so grateful. And I went to prison and here it was a little bit of a different environment. I was incarcerated at a facility that had other pregnant women and I heard their stories. Some of them, most of them had had a child before. So of course I'm like, they're my best resource for what's going to happen. You know, so I asked them about their labor and delivery and they told me as much as they could. There were women that had been in this facility before as well. So I asked them about a million and one questions. Well, finally, uh, June 12th, 2012, I went into labor about four o'clock in the morning. And again, remember I said I was in denial. I'm still in denial. You know, I don't think I'm having a baby. I just thought I slept wrong on this prison mattress. And there are no extras for pregnant women in Arkansas, not an extra mattress, not an extra pillow. So I'm like, oh, it's just a bad bed. You know, the beds, the mattresses are about this thin. I just assumed that I slept weird. No, you're having a baby. <laughs> so I tried to walk down to the chow hall and I was in so much pain and the other women were like, you're in labor. And I'm like, you're crazy, not me. I'm not having a baby. I'm enormous. I'm huge. I'm waddling around. And I still think like, I'm not going to have an actual baby. That's not happening. Why, why, why was you in su such denial? I mean, you've been carrying this baby for nine months. I mean, was it just a coping mechanism for you? Uh, because you, like you say, you were enormous. You're carrying this baby the moment it arrived, but you were still in denial. I was so afraid of labor and delivery let alone doing that in prison. I was so scared that I tried my best not to even think about it on a day-to-day -day basis. It was just complete fear, you know, so much fear that I couldn't really handle it. So finally I came to terms with like, oh gosh, it, the pain's getting worse. I have to go to the infirmary. So one of the girls ended up telling one of the COs like she's in labor, Kent's in labor. And he asked me like, can you walk down there by yourself? I'm like, I don't know, bro. I, I don't know. <laughs> I've never had a baby before. I don't know if I can walk or not, but I did. I, I walked to the infirmary and if anyone listening knows anything about prison, it is a long walk. It's controlled movement. They have to open doors and gates. I can't just walk and it's not an easy process. But I remember thinking, just get to the infirmary and they're going to help you. Everything is going to be fine. It's just this, this pain for now, but they're going to help you. I finally get to the infirmary and I'm sitting outside of it and I'm holding onto the door one hand is on the door because I'm in a lot of pain and the other hand is on the handle of the door. And I'm like, please just pop this door open, please, please, please. And they do. And I hear it and I pull the door open and I go in and I say to this nurse, I'm in labor. And she looks at me and she goes, did your water break? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. And she goes, okay, just have a seat here, which was in a wheelchair. And you're probably going to have to wait till shift change to go to the hospital. Now I don't know anything about having babies but I know that I should probably go to the hospital because I'm in so much pain. And my worst fear was that not only am I gonna give birth alone in like a jail cell or something, like that was one of my worst fears, but then leaving my baby behind. So I had to sit there for hours before shift change came and they took me to the hospital. And I am holding on to this chair, this wheelchair, and grinding my teeth and I'm trying not to scream because I don't want to make a scene, but I am in so much pain. I mean, it is the worst pain I've ever been in in my life. And I've broken bones. I've been in car accidents. Like, no, this is the worst pain ever. And I don't know if anything's wrong. You know, I, I just have no idea. Finally, they take me to the hospital and I was able to get an epidural. And the first set of officers were very nice to me. They were very kind. It was a man and a woman. The man, uh, once I got brought into a hospital bed, he goes, I don't think I need to be here. I'm just going to stand in the hallway. Let me know if you need anything. And I really appreciated that because he recognized like she's not going anywhere. She just can't run or anything. And the, the female that was with me uh, to begin with for a few hours, she was so nice. I guess she had just had a grandbaby and and she was telling me that I was going to be okay and that everything was going to be okay. And she goes, I hope you have this baby before I have to leave. I would like to see this baby, you know? And she was so nice to me. 
the nurses and the, the staff were kind of swishing around me. No one talked directly to me besides the officer. They all asked her questions uh, if they can do this or if they can do that. And I remember feeling just completely invisible. And it was very dehumanizing. You're, you're in an outside hospital at this point, right? So these are normal, I say normal, they, these are not sort of prison staff hospital. These are normal nurses, but they didn't feel that they had the power to ask you how you were feeling, what you exactly. needed. Exactly. And it was very bizarre. I had never been in a situation where now my medical team are asking a corrections officer about how I am doing. You know, and I don't know if it was because they didn't understand the protocol. They didn't know how to talk to an inmate. I, I don't know. Um, but it was very, it was very stressful. It was a very stressful moment. And I just tried to think, focus on what you have to do. Your body is going to know what to do. Trust your body. And I just tried to give myself as much positive talk as possible. I also remember thinking, I say this almost every time that I share my story and it makes me cry almost every time. But I remember thinking, if I don't look at my daughter, then I won't love her because they're taking her away from me. And again, this is a coping mechanism. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to do. I know that they're going to take her. And it was just so hard. I'm like, focus on what your body is doing. Your body's going to know what to do. You have to have this baby. Focus on that for now and the rest worry about later. So I tried to stay very in the moment. Eventually, my daughter was born around 3 p.m., 3.30 p.m., and I looked away, and I was facing the corrections officer, and they took uh, my daughter kind of away to, like, clean her off and do the stuff that they do for little babies. And uh, the officer, she recognized what I was doing. I, I was crying. I started to cry and look away, and she sees the scenario, and if I could ever find her again, I would just give her the biggest hug in the world, but she said, girl, you better look at that baby. And I thought, like, She's right. Obviously, I need to look at this baby. I don't even know what I was thinking. They brought her over to me, and when I held her, when I held her in my arms, I had never loved anyone more than I loved that baby. She was so beautiful, and she had so much hair, and she was so little. She was almost seven pounds, and I remember thinking, like, this is the smallest person I've ever seen in my life. Like, I was just blown away by the whole process and immediately in love. And in that second, I knew I am done with everything. My life is about her now. I'm done with drugs, selling drugs, bad people. I'm done. I retired in that moment because all I cared about was that baby. That's it. And that, that love and that mama bear instinct, it completely came over me, just like everyone talks about. I mean, it was so real and so incredible. And, you know, they told me she's healthy and everything's good. And they told me her weight. And I stayed in the hospital for two days with her. The very nice corrections officer had to leave. It was her shift change. And a new corrections officer came in and she chained me to the bed. Chained you to the bed. So in all the time you'd been there, given birth, had become a mother. So you were no longer Jessica, the teenager who ran wild. You were no longer Jessica, the prisoner who was disruptive or Jessica in denial. You now had become a mother and a loving mother because this child had changed your mindset in the moment that you'd given birth. You'd been around correctional officers who didn't feel there was a need to chain you to the bed. And this new one comes in two days after you'd given birth and change you to the bed? She came in like four hours after I gave birth. And my my wrist was chained. I was chained to the bed the, almost the whole time, I believe. Eventually, the nice guard, she realized I, I should take this off of her. But it really wasn't affecting my ability to give birth because I was kind of holding on to the bed anyway. So the handcuffs weren't bothering me. She did take them off for a couple of hours. So when the new corrections officer came in, I had given birth. Time moves differently after you give birth because you're like in this bliss and like euphoria. Three hours, maybe three, four hours. And that's when I was chained to the bed. My legs were chained. And that's protocol. You have to chain inmates to the bed if they're in an outside facility and they're getting medical treatment. But I had an epidural. I just had a baby. I can't run if I wanted to. And I wanted to. <laughs> I did. I did want to run away. But it was really hard. That, that new guard that chained me, she was very mean to me, very nasty. She didn't want to unchain me to go to the bathroom. 
She refused the doctor's orders when they said that I had to walk around to help my body heal. She said, that's against protocol. I'm not unchaining her to the bed to walk around. Now, I didn't fight back because I'm holding my newborn baby. I do not want to make this officer mad. I don't know how they're going to react. And I have to protect this baby. I don't trust corrections officers in this moment, especially with I'm a convicted drug dealer. I am technically a violent offender. And they know that. And I have a baby in my arms. So I am so scared to even push back or fight them at all. So the once very aggressive, I'm going to fight for my rights, you know, I'm going to fight for this or that, that person died when I'm holding my newborn baby because all I care about is her. And um, after a while, I realized, oh, God, my body is responding really badly to being chained to the bed for two days after birth. And my recovery was so painful. Once I finally was able to get out of that bed, I couldn't walk the right way. I, I was limping. I was in excruciating amounts of pain. It was very hard. Eventually, I have to go back to prison, right? I still have time to do. And the morning that I had to leave, I remember telling my baby like she could understand me. I said, I'll be back for you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to come back for you. And I kept saying it out loud. I don't know if it was to kind of just manifest what I had to do or, or to put that out into the world, but I was so dead set on, this is my child, I'm going to fight for her. The guards were at the door talking amongst themselves. Now these guards have been changed a couple of times. I don't even know who they are. I hadn't even seen their names, I don't even think. But my baby is in a little bassinet and the guard said, Kent, it's time to go. I told them no, without even facing them, like they're behind me. I said no, and the guard said, Kent, don't make this harder than it has to be. And I'm like, do I have to kill officers to protect my baby? Like, that's your instinct. Like, what do I have to do to protect this baby and not leave this baby? And I can't even describe that feeling. I had never felt anything like that before. Um, but I'm holding onto the best man, and I keep saying, like, I'll be back for you. I love you so much. I'll be back for you. I'll be back for you. The guards eventually came up behind me, grabbed me by my shoulders, threw me down into this wheelchair and chained me up as fast as they could. And they flew me out of that hospital room, down the hallway, into the elevator, down to the prison transport van. And they threw me into the van, chained up. Now, my newborn baby is alone in that hospital room and I can't get that image out of my mind. So what happened in that moment was they called, you know, DHS, they called uh, foster care and a foster family came and picked up. Micah, and named her Micah after my brother, Michael. And now I'm going back to prison. After they threw me into the, the van, they had like small talk about lunch and things. And I couldn't understand how normal this seemed for them. And I was angry. I was very angry. We get back to the prison and we go through Sally Port, which is the back of the prison to take me back. And I don't really remember much else. I know they tried to ask me questions. I I knew I had the ability to speak, but nothing was coming out. And they put me in the infirmary for a couple of weeks. I now know that that is because of PTSD. Um, and the trauma surrounding that entire experience is the reason why I don't remember what happened when I got back to the prison and why I don't remember everything they said or asked or even how long I was in the infirmary. I don't know. Sometimes I'll have flashes of, of that. But, but yeah, I, I have PTSD, which is not a fun thing at all. And I was very hard on myself because other women, I saw them go have their babies and come back to the prison and they get visitation because their family is in Arkansas. And I thought, okay, she did it. I can do it too. I'm strong too. But we all handle trauma and we all handle situations differently. But what happened to your little girl then? Because I'm under the impression, um, and I think it happens here in the United Kingdom. And I thought it happened in, in the States as well, that when a woman gives birth to a baby in prison, they are allowed to, in some prisons, I suspect, have that baby with them in certain facilities so that they can they can bond with that child, especially if they need to breastfeed, which is, you know, something really important. Um, but more about the bonding, um, <laughs> avoiding PSTD, uh, uh, etc. What What happened to your little girl then? She was put in foster care. And there are a few facilities in the United States where you can have your baby. They have full nursery programs and you'll have your baby for about 18 months or so, which is so vital to not only the mom, but to the baby as well. 
And uh, that just wasn't an option for me, which is very grotesque, very brutal to do that to new mothers and babies. But I was, you know, taken back to prison and I wasn't giving medication for breast milk. I just had to wrap my breast until the milk stopped coming in. And I didn't even know who had my daughter for a couple of months. It was the most traumatizing thing I'd ever experienced in my life. And uh, eventually I kind of realized you have to get to work. You have to take these classes and do your best to get out of prison with, with a GED, with uh, parenting classes and everything so that the parole board grants you parole. You have to be a model inmate. You have to do everything in your power to get your daughter back. And that started a few weeks after I got back to the facility and I did everything that I said I was gonna do. Took every class I possibly could read every book on parenting that I possibly could, read every book on psychology and addiction so that I could combat that and beat that myself. I learned coping mechanisms and skills to uh, prevent relapse. I mean, I was so focused on my recovery, my mental health and how to parent that I didn't see anything else. I didn't care about anything else. So eventually I get out of prison. I meet the foster family. How long had you served then? How long had you been in prison the, the, the complete time? Uh, two and a half years. I had to serve 50% of my time. Right. And so at the point that you'd given birth to your little girl, how much longer after giving birth did you stay in prison? How long had you been separated? Oh, gosh. Was it 18 months? Gosh. Maybe a little... Yeah. But in those 18 months, Jessica, did the foster parents bring her to visit you? Were you able to... You're shaking your head now. They did not come visit me one time. But I don't know if that was on them. I I don't think they understood how to handle a mother that is in prison. You know, there really was no protocol for them. They were up. They were kind of depending on foster care to tell them what to do. They did send me pictures and they did write me and I did meet them when my daughter was about six months old and I met them in court. And I, I'll never forget that day. I remember telling the foster mother who I'm still friends with and she's just such an incredible person. I said, thank you so much for being there when I couldn't be. I appreciate you. I know this job is so hard. And I could tell in that moment that no one had ever thanked her before. You know, she was really taken back. But this is a sacrifice that her whole family has made. A newborn baby is a lot of work. And I just remember wanting to like just give her so much love and appreciation because this is the person that is looking after the only person I love and care about in the world. And I have to surround, I have to just give her all of the love and appreciation that she deserves. And she was so kind and she was so nice. And she believed me. Her husband is a police officer and he did not believe me, (laughs) which was very funny. And I thought, I'm going to prove him wrong. It's okay. You know, it's okay. I like that he's protective because that shows that he cares about my baby. He cares. And I see that. And I, I genuinely loved the fact that he was protective and didn't believe me. But it was also motivation for me, right? So uh, when I get out, I did everything they wanted me to do. I got out homeless, so that was a challenge, but I was able to get two jobs. I was able to eventually, a few months later, six or so, get an apartment. Now, it wasn't a very nice apartment. Um, and I got a, a really, a hoopty car. I don't know if you know the word hoopty, but it's like just a crappy car in America. That's what we call crappy cars. And I was so proud of it because I bought that with real, like real money, not drug money. This was the first car I purchased with legit money. The cops can't take this car from me. The cops can't kick in my apartment door. This is all legit. I did hair follicle drug testing. I did therapy. I did everything parole asked of me. I did everything the court system asked of me. I had friends from my job donating clothes to Micah and little toys and everything so that I had everything for her. And after a year of my release, I was granted sole legal custody of Micah. She is now nine years old and we are inseparable and we're living our best life. So I fought and I fought and it was really, really hard. There were moments where I thought I wouldn't get custody of her. There were moments where I thought there's no way I can afford to even be her mom. There were moments where I doubted my ability as a parent because I had never parented a child before. And I saw this foster mom and she is such an incredible mother. She had several other kids and the love that she had for them and the way that she interacted with all of these kids was just so incredible. And I thought, man, she's like Joan Cleaver compared to me. I don't know how to do this, but 
she was very encouraging and helped me with, you know, moments of doubt. And even if it went the other way and I lost custody, they would ask the court to adopt and I would be in her life regardless. That door was always open to me because the foster family saw how much I cared. And they saw this bond that Micah and I had almost instantly, which was very bizarre because we had been separated for so long, but that's just like the power of, of love for your child. She uh, didn't call me mom at first. So there was, there was barriers and there were struggles that I had to overcome. But like I said, she's nine years old now and she knows what I do. She knows that I went to jail and that she was with me while I was in jail. And I think that's important. I think it's important to have age appropriate conversations. And she knows that it's our story, mine and hers, that has helped so many people feel less alone. And my presence on social media is in large part due to her. It's, it's an incredible story and it still is an incredible story because I know you're still on the journey. Most people, well, I say most people, I don't know. I'm just saying that, but I suppose having gone to prison, given birth to your daughter while you're in prison, decided that, you know, your love for her was going to turn your life around, which it did. You came out, you've bonded, you, you've got your child back. Why, why do you use your experience of being an ex-drug user, um, somebody who's been to prison, giving birth in prison? You know, some people will try and hide that, but you haven't, Jessica, and it's to be admired that you've used your, your past to um, improve your future and to share with others. Tell, tell me a little bit about why you do that, why you have this presence on social media, why you use your prison experience and your stories to share with other people. I think it wasn't right away. I didn't get out of prison and decide, you know what, I'm going to share my life online. That was a journey on its own. But I decided all I want to do is help people understand that the stigma surrounding people that have gone to prison and the stigma surrounding mental health and drug addiction is so terrible and it's costing lives, you know, that shame and that stigma. And I just decided one day, you know what, I'm going to make seven videos and I'm seeing people die on social media because of their addiction. So I decided to make seven videos and they were going to be called heroin, my road to recovery. And if people found them, that's cool. And if I inspired someone and someone saw that I got sober so they can too, then that's great. I never in a million years thought that it would turn into what it has, but I just wanted to get my story out there. And I never thought I'd talk about giving birth in prison. I never thought I would talk about my mental health. I just thought I would talk about overcoming heroin addiction, which was the hardest addiction for me personally. And after seven videos, I thought your life is more confusing than just seven videos will allow. And people were so kind to me. And I just realized, just keep going and see what happens. You know, we hit 10,000 subscribers on YouTube three years ago. And I thought, wow, I've made it like there's no way it's going to get bigger. And everything after has just been completely mind blowing. So now I think I have almost 2 million across all of my platforms, which is insane. But more importantly, I work with a treatment center and we're helping people find recovery. I'm a board member on a nonprofit called Free Bird Movement. So that one idea to share my story so that other people feel less alone has turned into this huge thing. And I'm able to reach people all around the world. I'm able to help people find recovery. I'm, up, I'm able to help people realize that we have to change our policies in America and change our drug laws because we're actually hurting people. So it's just been an incredible journey that I wouldn't have been able to go on if it wasn't for my subscribers. If it wasn't for them watching my videos and sharing my videos, none of this would have been possible. You wouldn't have heard my name. I wouldn't be on this podcast right now. And I'm just unbelievably grateful that there are so many people out there watching me, watching my story, and they're so incredibly kind to me. And why do you think that is? Why do you think there is an interest, not just in you, but in the subject area that you talk about? Because some of the videos that I've seen, you know, you make light of a very serious subject, but in a way that's accessible, you know, when you're talking about some of the real tough stuff that you're talking about, mental health issues, drug addiction, you know, giving birth, bringing up a child, you know, all the challenges that you faced in prison, other women and men face in prison. You make, I say light of it, but in a, in a fun way, so it's more accessible. Why do you think that, that people out there are interested in these things? So when you're on social media, there is an entertainment aspect to it. And 
I'm not ever, I'm not a really serious person. So I want to show all of it, you know, like I curled my hair with toilet paper or I did this or that. And I think, I think that helps humanize inmates. And I think it helps people realize like, okay, this is just a regular person that had, you know, a drug addiction or that had, has made bad mistakes. So I might make prison food and that's pretty entertaining. But I think people are just genuinely curious because they have no experience with it. So they'll watch prison shows and jail shows and they're like, wow, I wonder what it's really like. Well, prison content creators are more than happy to tell you what it's really like. And not every day in prison is bad. You know, I did my best to make people laugh and I'm goofy and I'm funny and I like to, you know, kind of be the life of the party so that people are less depressed, especially in a tough environment like prison on the holidays. So I'm like, well, we're going to make cheesecake and we're going to laugh about some stuff, you know, so I think the entertainment aspect where it seems like I'm making light, some people might criticize that and say that I'm glorifying prison. Um, I think that it's important to show the human side and it's important to show that we are creative and, and we're just people that made bad mistakes and I can show you how to charge your phone with some batteries because I learned that in prison. So let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you know a lot and you've learned a lot. What, what's, what, what drives you then? I mean, you know, you're involved in nonprofit, you're, you're doing your social media stuff. No doubt you're bringing up your little girl. What, what drives you today then? I mean, where are you in your life today alongside those things? Well, I went from homeless to homeowner. So that's pretty incredible. Um, I'm getting married in a few months. Oh, we have had a second. Thank you. We've had a second daughter, Riley. She's five. Oh, wow. And man, I just, we have two dogs. They're also very important. They want to be mentioned. So my <laughs> life is very beautiful. And I, I never saw my life being this happy. You know, I, I really thought I wasn't going to survive my addiction. Not only have I survived it, but I am thriving. And that is a testament to just how strong we are, especially just getting out of active addiction. It is very hard and it will just beat you down. And I think that that gets overlooked, the strength of people coming out of prison and the strength of people coming out of addiction. I think that it gets overlooked and the stigma just here is like, oh, they're weak because they're picking up a substance. You know, those are some of the strongest people I've ever met in my life. And they're just trying to live the life that I have just to not have to wake up and feel sick. You know, that was my first goal. So I'm, I'm forever grateful every day past 25 that I get to live and I get to be a mom and a wife and just talk on the internet about, about everything that I do. It's, it is my passion. So, you know, my goals for prison reform is that we change the way that we, we treat inmates. I think we need to end the war on drugs and there should not be a prison in America that houses a pregnant inmate that does not have a nursery program. Most women are serving time on nonviolent drug charges, and there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't be able to be in a program or be on house arrest until they have their baby. What I went through should never happen. But again and again and again, I see news stories of women giving, a giving birth alone in jail cells, and sometimes their baby does not survive. That is barbaric. It is 2022 in America, and we are so far behind when it comes to addiction and when it comes to prison. It is an embarrassment. It is just a, a disgusting testament to everything that we have wrong in this country because you judge a society by, it, by how it treats its most vulnerable. Well, homeless and the addicted and mentally ill and inmates, they are our most vulnerable, and we're doing a terrible job right now. So my goal is to change that. What, what advice, if not advice, I mean, that's a, a crude way of asking a question, but it's just, I'm just thinking about people listening to this, whose sons and daughters, husbands, wives, friends may themselves be kind of struggling with addiction at the moment. And, you know, it's it's one of those sort of big challenges of sort of helping them when all seems lost and it's impossible to help them. You know, you were in that situation. No one could help you or guide you. It wasn't until you held your little girl in your arms that that moment had come in your life, the tipping point, if you like, where it was no longer going to be the old Jessica, the new Jessica was born at the same time your daughter was born. So there was something tangible, something real in your life that made you think there's more to life than me getting high on drugs or getting involved in criminality. Is there anything we can do to help people, Jessica, who are going, you know, struggling at this time? You know, I can't speak for everyone. But I will just say that when I was in my active addiction, I remembered the people that didn't judge me, 
They didn't scream at me to get sober. I remember the people that invited me into their home and they're like, do you need to take a shower? Do you need to sleep? You can sleep on the couch or let me make you something to eat. I remember the kindness more than I remember the tough love. And I, I didn't want to be around people that were screaming at me to get sober. And I know there's a fear that I'm going to lose my loved one and I have to get through to them. But at the end of the day, I think love goes so much further than screaming that you have to get sober. And while that is very, very difficult to love an addict because we can be very selfish and aggressive and your mental health matters too, so only do what you're capable of, I think it's important that we, instead of disconnecting them from our social circles, instead of kicking them out and having tough love, I think it's more important to welcome them in and show them that you genuinely care. And it could be something as minor as making them a sandwich, <laughs> just showing them that you're there for them and you love them and you just want them to be healthy. That's really powerful. The theme of my podcast is second chance, and, and that comes in many different shapes and sizes. What what does the term or the phrase second chance mean to you, Jessica, if anything at all? Oh my gosh. Well, I've, I've had a second chance <laughs> many times over. I've had a lot of chances um, from overdosing and being revived to getting out of prison and getting back on my feet. I've had a lot of chances. I guess just what it means to me is I think everyone deserves that. You know, we're human. We all make mistakes. Everyone deserves a second chance at life, at freedom, even though there's people in prison that shouldn't ever get out of prison. I understand that. But most people deserve that shot. You know, we, we all make mistakes. And I think we are all just one mistake away from spending time in prison. You know, we're one decision away or one accident away from, from that becoming a reality. It's very easy to get arrested here. So I think second chances are important. We shouldn't uh, kick people out of prison and label them as felons and disconnect them from employment and housing. And I, I just wish that we did a better job in this country. And I'm probably going to be on my deathbed talking about that. And just before we go, thank you, Jessica. I mean, um, if people want to find out more about your story, because there is more than what you shared with me, I mean, you know, the details, if people want to to watch your insights into prison. I mean, where can they get this kind of information? I also heard that you'd written a book. Has it been published? Will it be published soon? We are working on writing a book. It's been kind of a long journey. <laughs> um, so not yet, but my social media is mostly self-titled. It's just Jessica Kent on YouTube. Um, I have a vlog channel. If you'd like to follow my family, it's just Jessica Kent Vlogs. And TikTok and Instagram is Jess Ken 12 and when do you hope to finish the book? Because I suppose that's going to have all the detail, isn't it? Uh, it's going to be a memoir. And I really hope that this time next year, I can hand everyone a book. I actually have the book done. It's, it's actually a lot of work to write a book. So It is. Yeah. No, I, I published my, my memoir last year. And I know how difficult and challenging it is because you are revealing even though you talk publicly about your experiences, you know, you are kind of sharing a little bit more because the book requires a little bit more. Well, good luck with that. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us, Jessica. It's a powerful story, powerful testimony. And I think lots of people can learn a lot from, from your journey, your experiences, and keep on keeping up the good fight, trying to educate people about what prison is really like, the challenges people face, but how, most importantly, you can overcome you know, the biggest challenges in your life, in your case, drug addiction, you know, criminality, giving birth in prison, rebonding with your child and making that all work and then turning all of the negatives into such a positive um, future. And, and it's brilliant. It really is brilliant. So thank you so much, Jessica, for sharing your story with me and, and my listeners. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Second Chance Podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated and we couldn't have produced this podcast without you. You can find the YouTube video of this interview on our channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe and watch more interviews with our guests. Share our episode with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platforms for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. We pride ourselves on producing high quality content and our team works tirelessly to achieve this. 
Audio editing is done by Audio Avalanche. Original music is by j Row Productions. Cover design is by Studio Minerva. And Sophie Warner is our social media editor. Kabilotto handles video editing. Kim Cullicutt at Second Chance Podcast produced this episode. And I'm your host, Raphael Rowe. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started <laughs>